0: Uh, I was just, I was thinking, hearing that there's some guests here. Uh, since I'm a guest, I can, I can relate with you. I'm not sure who you are because I'm a guest, um, but I was thinking uh, I, that gives me the freedom to, to make a shameless plug for the church. So if you're, if you're looking for a church family, uh, my, like my, like Stephen said, we've just, we've fallen in love with Grace and Truth, and just love visiting and uh, getting to know the members here and the leadership. And so, uh, if you're looking for a, a church body where the where the uh, elders really care for the people uh, that they're shepherding and uh, there's a genuine love for the Word of God and, and a care uh, for one another, this is, a, this is a church for you. So I encourage you to, to look at that, if that's the case. Um, tonight, um, our, the passage we're going to be looking at is Second Corinthians chapter 5. We're going to examine verses 14 through 21. So if you want to open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I'll be reading from the uh, ESV, English Standard Version. Beginning at verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died, therefore all have died. And He died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him who Father, it's, it's a joy to be able to consider the message of reconciliation. To consider what You've brought us out from and then to consider as well the transformation that that's, take, that's taken place in our thinking, uh, in our heart. Lord, the, the, the new truths, the ways we look at the world are so different from what they once were. And I pray that that, that understanding would transform our heart to have a passion to reconcile unbelievers to you and then one another as, as we sin, as we drift, that we would be passionate to care for one another's souls. That we would have such a clear understanding of the gospel that it would, that it would uh, dictate, it would empower, it would direct all of our decisions, particularly how we care for one another and uh, those who are outside of the body of Christ. Lord, we ask for your help. Help us individually to see how we might apply this passage, um, transform our thinking, uh, encourage the downcast, the, the burdened uh, with your promises, uh, convict where we need conviction, and uh, draw us closer to you that we might worship you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We ask these things in your name. Amen. On July 27th, 1724, The boy who came to be known as Wild Peter was captured near the town of Hamel, Germany. He appeared to be about 12 years old. He could not speak, and he would eat only vegetables and grass and suck the juice of green stalks. At first, he even rejected bread that was offered to him. And what we found is from time to time throughout history, wild children have appeared in society. Children who have grown up by themselves. Children who had been possibly even reared by animals, according to some legends and stories. And there's over a hundred cases of these children known to us. One in particular in 1920 was the Reverend J.A.L. Singh, who ran an orphanage and church school, and he came across two little girls. Here is his story. He was a pastor uh, touring uh, his district of Midnapore, India, when he had heard some stories of these man-beasts who had dwelt among wolves that had taken up residence in a termite mound. And one night he saw them himself. And so he returned with helpers the next morning to investigate. And when he got there, he came upon these two girls, uh, approximately eight years old, another two, who were curled up with two wolf cubs. And he took the curls back to his orphanage with the, girl, with the goal of restoring them back to humanity and civilization. But their restoration was no easy task. For they continued to run on all fours. They would howl. They rejected uh, normal food, we'd say. They, 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 they would prefer meat, raw meat even, or carrion to vegetables or bread. And whether these girls were abandoned by their parents or had run run away, there's no way to to know for certain. And as I read these accounts, and others like them this week, I was struck by how much they parallel our own spiritual conditions. See, all of us at one time were wild children. We ran away from our Heavenly Father, and we sought to live a life apart from Him, according to our own counsel and direction, and without His... But in God's grace, we were found. We were reconciled back to Him through the preaching of the gospel. And He has begun this process of restoring us back to our created purpose. But this process of restoration is no easy task. We easily revert back to our natural tendencies, what the Bible describes as living in the flesh, And that is why we come to church. That's why we need one another. That's why we need shepherds to help us, to remind us of who we are in Christ. We need help in this restoration process of becoming like Christ. How do you you believe the Reverend Singh responded to the girls after he realized how slow their process of restoration was? Do you think he was harsh with them when they went after Carrion? Do you think he beat them when they were slow to learn how to talk? Probably not. Because he he recognized where they had come from. There was a a sympathetic heart. They had grown up with wolves. And despite the challenge he faced in caring for them, he wasn't about to give them back up to the wild. He didn't just give up caring for their needs and neglect them just because they had developmental challenges or they were resistant to change. And yet, so often, this is what happens in the church. After coming to Christ through the proclamation of the gospel, Christians are freed from their former bondage to sin and they're brought into the loving care of a church community. Yet, when they demonstrate slow growth or there's resistance to change, when they wander away from the truth, we're tempted to be harsh with them. We're tempted to um, get angry at their sin when this change is slow. Or probably more likely, more often, particularly with my own self, is I'm tempted to neglect them. Because it's just easier. Ministry's hard. Whether it's within our families, whether it's in the church body, That's that's the challenge. So today I want to talk about our responsibility as Christians to actively pursue reconciliation and restoration in the lives of one another. And so for the purpose of clarity, let me define those two terms. Restoration and reconciliation. Okay, Restoration considers the state or the condition of a person being brought back to health. It has to do with the state of the person. Think of the spiritual health of the person. Uh, the word in Scripture uh, means to make perfect, and it's, it's used often in reference to a, a fractured bone or a dislocated bone that needs to be put back into a healthy place. And so when we talk about restoration, what we're considering is uh, restoring a person to a healthy spiritual condition, walking in the Spirit, you could say. And reconciliation uh, focuses on the relationship, that's, that, that conflict has emerged in, that when sin happens, tension happens, there's a break in the relationship, and that relationship needs to be restored. And so restoration considers the restoring of a relationship, whether it's between Christians or between Christians and God, and particularly whenever there's sin, the restoration, or sorry, the reconciliation needs to happen between Christians and God. But there's also restoration, uh, the, the spiritual state, the health of the person, Uh, Needs to be given attention. And so we're going to focus our attention towards 2 Corinthians chapter 5, where we'll see three motivations for reconciliation in Paul's life the gospel, the eternal value of a person, and the heart of God. So, three motives towards pursuing reconciliation in the lives of one another the gospel, the eternal value of a person, and the heart of God. And you'll notice in this section, Paul actually uses the word reconciliation five times, more than any other place in Scripture, and, and his point is, is, this is this is intensely upon his heart. What he's talking about is his motive for why he does what he does, why he devoted himself to being a preacher of the gospel. It's because he has this passion for reconciliation, and we'll see that. Uh, to give the context of the book of 2 Corinthians as a whole, What Paul is doing is he's writing to the church in Corinth because there's a number of problems that have emerged within the church. In particular, there's been some false teachers that came into the church. And those false teachers were twisting the gospel, which was was really threatening to Paul. He was really concerned about that. But not only that, the way that they were trying to lead people away was by undermining Paul's authority as an apostle. So in order to draw people away to them and their own ideas... They're false ideas, they're false doctrines. They were trying to undermine Paul's authority in his teaching. And so Paul, with great passion for the church, writes this letter to, one, refute these accusations, but also to remind the Corinthians of the central truths of the gospel, who they are in Christ. And he understood if if these people walk away from Paul as a leader, they're really going to be walking away from the gospel. And so, in chapter 5, Paul is defending himself But not because he's he's trying to just make himself look good. He's he's defending himself because really his teaching is accurate. And he wants to say, hey, I'm I'm not doing ministry. I'm not pursuing reconciliation out of my own interests. I do this because I love the gospel. And so that's where we pick up in chapter 5. It's particularly in recognizing what Jesus Christ did for him that motivates Paul. He says this in verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all. And therefore, all have died. And he died for all so that those who live would no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and rose again on their behalf. See, Paul recognizes Jesus' love for sinners. He understands the gospel. It's recognizing Jesus' love for sinners that stirs his passion to want to reconcile people back to God. That's why he says, for the love of Christ controls us. It's that understanding, the understanding of God's love that drives him. And that's particularly manifested in the phrase, that one has died. See, God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, not when we were good people, not when we were following him, God demonstrates His own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, He died for us. It's in Christ's death that we see the love of God. When we recognize that one has died, it stirs us up to understand His heart and therefore have a passion for what He has a passion for. Which brings up this question. Why did Christ die? Why did Jesus Christ have to die on the cross? And I'm going to take a couple minutes here and explain because if clarity and understanding the Gospel is what motivated Paul, we also need to have clarity in our understanding. See, Jesus Christ died in particular for this reason. To restore us to our created purpose. God created man in order to be a worshiper of Him. We were created to worship God. And that word worship comes from the old English term worth Skype. And what it means is to declare the worth or the value of something. We worship something when we declare its value or when we find our personal value in that object. And so God created us to find our value in Him, but also to declare His value, His significance, His worth. But what we find is right after our creation, that purpose was twisted. Although we were created to worship God, we rejected that purpose. Adam and Eve wanted to be like God. That's why they sinned. When Satan tempted them by saying, if you have this fruit, you will be like God, that's what lured them away. And ever since, that's really the driving passion of all of our hearts, if we're honest. We want to do what we want, live according to our desires. We get angry when our desires don't get met. In a sense, really the essence of sin is doing what we want versus what God wants. And really that's self-worship at its core. And the result of that is the wrath of God. Man's problem, though, is not merely God's wrath. Although that's a significant problem. But also that in, rejected God, in rejecting God, we have made ourselves slaves of sin. So God has given man over to pursue the desires of his heart. And as man's wickedness increased, so God's wrath has increased against each man because of their sin. And this is the Gospel. God, knowing the horror of His own wrath and not wanting anyone to endure it for a moment, let alone all eternity, sent His Son into the world to bear the wrath that we deserve so that we wouldn't have to. He, Jesus Christ, suffered God's wrath so that we wouldn't have to suffer it. And now through faith in Jesus, we can receive freedom from His wrath, the forgiveness from all our sins, all our sins in the past, all our sins right now, all our sins from the future, gone. Simply by trusting in Christ and His sacrifice. But not only that, and this is what I want to emphasize. Not only do we receive freedom from the wrath of God in becoming Christians, in putting our faith in Christ, we also receive freedom from our self-centered obsession. We no longer are worshippers of ourselves. We're set free from that. So we're we're set free to worship God like we were created to. And that's what Paul hits on next in verse 15. He died for all And therefore, all have died. That's his point. We've died to ourself, our self-centered obsession. He died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and for their sake was raised. See, Christ died. Jesus Christ died to free you from your love of self, from your self-centeredness. And so now we're free to live for him who died in our place. See, what happens is Christians no longer live to make themselves significant in the eyes of others. We no longer live to bring glory to ourselves. See, the world's different. See, everything that the world values is where we once found our value. The world values riches, so we pursue riches so that we can be significant. The world values good looks. We pursue good looks. We do whatever we can to make ourselves seem special in the eyes of others, to give us significance. that can be found in anything. But we've been set free from that. We no longer value what the world values. And so instead of trying to get people to value us, in other words, worship us, we live to help people worship Christ and to find their value in Christ. And this is why Paul explains in Romans 12, 1, that the way Christians worship is by being living sacrifices. This is your spiritual act of worship. That you would be a living sacrifice. We don't worship God by just sacrificing animals like they did in the Old Testament. We are the sacrifice. Because we live no longer for ourselves, but for Him who died and for our sake was raised. That's the gospel. We're freed from the wrath of God. We're freed from ourselves. We no longer live for ourselves, and that's how we make our decisions. That's how we live. We're dead to ourselves. At the age of 22, Jim Elliot had a promising ministry in front of him in the United States. He probably could have had a very successful pastorate as an evangelist or a teacher, and he had every natural reason to want to stay here, particularly because for the interest of pleasing his family. His parents were not very excited when he told them he had a desire to go to the Kichwa tribe in Ecuador, and they wrote him, And they told him so. They didn't support his desire to leave and seek the reconciliation of these unbelievers back to their Creator. But because of his love for Christ, that superseded his love for their desires for him and his own pleasure in the States. And he tried to explain that to them in this response that he wrote to them. I do not wonder that you were saddened at the word of my going to South America, he replied on August 8th. This is nothing else than what the Lord Jesus warned us of when he told the disciples that they they must become so infatuated with the kingdom and following him that all other allegiances must become as though they were not. And he never excluded the family tie. In fact, those loves that we regard as closest, he told us, must become as hate in comparison with our desires to uphold his cause. Grieve not, then, if your sons seem to desert you. But rejoice, rather seeing the will of God done gladly. Remember how the psalmist described his children? He said that they were as a heritage from the Lord, and that every man should be happy who had his quiver full of them. And what is a quiver full of? But arrows. And what are arrows for? But to shoot. So with the strong arm of prayer, pull back the bowstring and let the arrows fly, all of them, straight at the enemy's host. And on January 8th, 1956, five Alca Indians of Ecuador killed Jim Elliot and his four companions as they were trying to bring the gospel to this tribe of about 60 people. Four young wives and nine children lost their fathers. And Elizabeth Elliot, uh, his wife, wrote that the world called it a nightmare and a tragedy. And then she added, the world did not recognize the truth of the second clause in Jim's credo. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. What drove Jim Elliot and his companions into the dangerous jungles of Ecuador was a clear understanding of the gospel. They recognized where true value comes from. They were desperate to help others recognize this truth as well. Even if it meant dying for them, they were willing to die, to lay down their own lives in order to help the people of this obscure tribe be reconciled back to God. Jesus said, Greater love hath no man than this that he would lay down his life for another. These men loved total strangers. Even enemies. Because these missionaries were killed by them. See, loving people means doing what is best for them regardless of the consequences to ourselves. Say that again. Loving people means doing what is best for them regardless of the consequences to ourselves. That's the driving force behind restoration and reconciliation, as we'll see. And this is because the gospel changes our thinking. We don't think like we used to. We don't think according to the world's value system. In particular, we see people differently. We, don't, we value people in light of how God values them. We recognize their eternal value. See, being born again, that was Jesus' phrase to Nicodemus, Being born again causes a value change. And Paul alludes to that in verse 16. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard Him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. That phrase, we recognize no one according to the flesh, is, uh, means the gospel changes the way we think about people. See, Paul once evaluated Christ from a worldly standpoint to the extent that he hated Christ. In fact, any of his followers that he heard of, he chased down, we hear of in the book of Acts, when he was referred to as Saul, and he persecuted them, threw them in prison, because he hated Christ, because he understood that if a person had been hung on a tree, as Christ was, being crucified on the cross, he was accursed of God. But what Paul didn't understand is Jesus Christ was accursed of God, not because he had done anything wrong, but because he bore our curse. He was accursed of God. But he didn't bear his sin. He bore our sin. And when Christ appeared to him on the Damascus road, Paul's assessment of Christ changed. And likewise, his assessment of every living being changed. See, when we're saved by God's grace, our evaluation begins to be transformed. There are no long, people are no longer tools for our own self-exaltation, our own self-aggrandizement. Or they're not hurdles or stumbling blocks that we need to blow through or use. We recognize people are image bearers of God. God created people not to exalt ourselves, but God created people to exalt Him. They're image bearers of God, created to worship Him. And so in light of the gospel, people are not valued based upon what the world values, but their value is seen as being worshipers of God. Now, of course, the world doesn't value people in such a manner. People's value is based upon their success, their popularity, their income, Their physical looks, their family heritage, intellectual achievements. But when a person gets saved, we recognize that's empty. There's no eternal worth in those things. The gospel enables us to value things from God's perspective. This is what Paul meant in Philippians chapter 3. If you want to turn there, just keep your finger here in 2 Corinthians 5. Paul makes just a profound statement of his, this change in value system that drives this change he sees in other people. Philippians chapter 3, Paul has described what he used to find value in, essentially being a Pharisee. When he's, his heart was changed, he no longer did. Instead, he says this in verse 7 But whatever gain, you could say value, I once had, I counted as lost for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss compared to the all-surpassing greatness of knowing Him. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Trash. Excrement. That's what he sees as the value of everything that the world chases after. See, when we had no value, we had no righteousness to offer ourselves to God. He gave us all our righteousness. All the righteousness we could ever desire. Christ's righteousness was given to us. And so now there's no longer anything separating us from God. When we had no value, God restored our value by restoring us spiritually. And this is conveyed in verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. And this is our new value system. The way we evaluate people, or at least we should evaluate people, is either a person is in Jesus Christ, they're a believer in Jesus Christ, or they're not. A person's value isn't based upon what they do, it's based upon are they in Christ or not. And if they're not in Christ, we have the message of reconciliation that we need to bring to them, where they can find true value, true significance. Which brings up this question. Is that how you value people? When you meet a stranger, how do you think about them? What forms your first impression? Is it how much money they make? Their age? How much influence they have? What position they're at at work or in the church? Do you consider, how can this person benefit me? Or, what can I do to help this person worship God? See, we all too often let people become a means to an end. A means to our own getting our own desires met. And therefore, if they hinder that, we get angry. But the gospel should change that. See, if we evaluate people based upon the world's value system, then a person's spiritual health is not going to be a priority to us. So if they drift from God, we're not going to really prioritize their reconciliation. We're not really going to care how that individual is doing. So when there's conflict in relationships, our tendency is going to just simply be avoid involvement. Because it's messy. It's hard work. There's unrepentant sin. If we value people based upon the world's value, we're not going to want to pursue that. It's going to be too much of a burden to us. If we find a person who's a new believer in Christ, we're going to think, that's just a lot of work to invest in them. There's so much to learn. A sacrifice I don't know if I'm willing to make. But if we understand how God values people, how God truly cares for them, it's going to change the way we respond. If a person's unsaved, we're going to desire to have them to be reconciled to Christ. And if a person's saved and they're struggling with sin, we're going to do what we can to help them understand what it means to be a believer, to remind them of the promises of the gospel. And if believers are in conflict, we're going to help them recognize that if you're in Christ, you're dead to your own interests. You've died. Let go of whatever's hindering you in this conflict. Stop thinking about yourself, but think about how can I love this person I'm in conflict with? And this is modeled by Paul in 2 Corinthians 5 18 through 21. And I I want to remind us, too, that Paul is writing to people who are professing believers. These are people within the church. But uh, the conflict that's uh, gone up off in the church uh, causes him to really call that into question. He doesn't really know where they're at. Because some are drifting away from him and the gospel. And so he writes this to them. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world back to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us this message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making His appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God." What this passage demonstrates is God's passion for reconciliation. It's God's heart. God has a passion to see everybody brought back to himself. And likewise, that should be our passion. And this truth radically changed the focus of Paul's life. He no longer lived for himself, but rather for the interests of Christ. As the text emphasizes, Christ's desire is that the world will be reconciled to him. And what he says is, the reconciliation has been accomplished. It's done. It can happen. All these wild children that have strayed from their Heavenly Father can be brought back. The means has been accomplished. Our responsibility is to go proclaim to them you can be restored back to your created purpose. So the burden lies upon us. And so now we live to help people walk in harmony with God. And even when believers have been brought back to their Heavenly Father through the proclamation of the gospel, they still continue to drift. That's what sin is. They start living for themselves, they pursue their own desires, and they they forget it's not about them anymore. And our responsibility is to continue to remind them, help them what it means to be a follower of Christ. And this is going to be the driving point of our life to seek reconciliation if we recognize, what the, the our, uh, have a correct understanding of the gospel. If we understand people's eternal value, and we understand God's heart to have people reconciled back to Him. And consider also how a failure to understand these truths actually affects our desire to pursue reconciliation. For instance, if we fail to understand that we've died to ourselves, we're not really going to care how other people are doing. We're just going to be thinking about how they affect us. And particularly if they sin against us, well, then we might get interested in their sin and helping them with it. Probably not because they love us, but because it's affecting us and we want our way. So if we forget that truth, we're not going to be interested in reconciliation. If we fail to recognize people as eternal value we're not going to care. We understand God's heart for people to be reconciled to Him. If We forget that, I mean. If we don't recognize that, it's just not going to be a priority to us. So if we're going to pursue reconciliation in the way that gospel should drive us to, we have to understand the gospel. In particular, that people were created to worship God. And so they've died to themselves. And... The people's value isn't based upon what they do or how much money they make. It's that their value is in being in Christ. And that's it. See, many churches today are filled with lonely people, people who are craving attention. And all of us desperately want to be known. Deep down, we desire that people would know both our strengths and our weaknesses. We want people to actually prioritize us and to prioritize how we're doing. But realistically, if somebody's going to come up to me or maybe any of you and and ask me, hey, how are you doing? My tendency is just to say, "I'm, I'm fine, I'm good, even if I'm not. Why is that? Why is this the case? If the church is made up of people who recognize the gospel why is it that we're so slow to be honest with how we're doing spiritually? And I, as I thought through this, I think, I think it's for these two reasons or this particular reason. We're not very good at loving people. and Therefore, it's really hard for trust to get established. See, if a person believes that you love them, that you really care about them, and you're not just a means to their own end, they're you're you're more likely to trust them. And there's two reasons people don't trust people, I think. They learned either to stop trusting people because that's kind of how the world works, is people are just a means to an end, and and they've been burned in their relationships, so they're just not going to open up their heart because it's painful. Or, that person has proven themselves untrustworthy, so you're not going to open up your heart to them because you can't trust them. They find out your sin and they proclaim it to everybody and they're not really thinking about you. And so we're reluctant to be honest. But if a person recognizes that you genuinely desire their best interest, they're going to be more apt to listen to you and to allow you to help bring reconciliation back to their relationship. Whether it's with God or with another person. Consider what's going on in your own heart uh, the, uh, when a person confronts you, you can think of the last person, person confront, the last time a person confronted you, whether it was your spouse, a friend at work, somebody in the church. Did you trust that person? Or did you think, as I often do, this person is pointing out my sin simply in order to justify their own sin? This person's trying to manipulate me into doing what they want. I'm just a means to their end. So that's why they're pointing out this flaw in me. Or this person doesn't really care about how I'm doing. I'm not important. They're confronting me because they think this is simply their spiritual duty. They don't care about me. They're just doing the Christian thing. See, all of those reasons point back to a lack of trust. Really, we make those assumptions because we don't trust them. And if you're not being driven by the gospel in your life, people aren't going to trust you. They're going to shirk your attempts at reconciliation. And this is why Paul says what he says in Galatians 6.1. I want you to go ahead and flip there. Go to, you can flip out to 2 Corinthians 5. Go to Galatians 6.1. It's just the next book in the Bible. And Paul says this about restoration. He says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. See, spiritual here uh, goes back to chapter five, where Paul explains what it means to be walking in the Spirit. The per- those who are spiritual aren't the super elite Christians in the church. It's those people who are walking in the Spirit, who are who who are living. Out a correct understanding of the gospel they're demonstrating that in their life and it's manifesting itself in love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and self-control and uh, so those who are walking the spirit when they see another person's sin they're not to go over to them like the spiritual police and beat them but to seek to restore them in a spirit of gentleness recognizing the reality of our fight with sin it is not easy He says this in verse 24, chapter 5, verse 24. Before he gets, it's the verses right before he says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in a transgression, 524, he says, And those who belong to Jesus Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let's not become conceited, provoking one another and envying one another. And I don't know if your experience is like mine. I've been in a lot of, part of, a number, a lot of different churches. Um, But often in my life, there's a lot of um, conceit, a lot of provoking, a lot of envy. And often when sin is being confronted, that's what's driving it. Not always love. But if we're walking the Spirit and we've crucified the flesh, we recognize that's what it means to be a believer, then we're going to restore people with a spirit of gentleness. And notice how Paul emphasizes in this text, to recognize that we've died to ourselves before we seek to restore other people. Because our tendency is, when we seek to confront sin, usually it's a response to somebody sinning against us. That's often the case. And so, we need to, we need to stop, breathe for a second, and consider, how do I help this person who's in sin? Not, how do, how do I seek my own justice? I've been offended. I need to seek justice. Instead, we we need something. It's not about me. I've died to my passions and desires. My goal is to help this person spiritually. If we do that, it's going to be in gentleness. If we don't, it's not going to be in gentleness. For instance, if my wife speaks to me in a harsh tone, I often get offended and I get self-pitiful. I'm really good at that. And I confront her because she hurt me. And when that's my motive, my self-pity, it usually doesn't go very well. That's an understatement. <laughs> if I, but if I recognize that my interest should be in loving her instead of licking my wounds, I'm going to be considering, what, what is going on with her that would make her speak to me in such a manner. See, when we restore others, we need to be thinking of, how do I best love this person? How do I reconcile uh, our relationship and reconcile their relationship with God? And the same is true with our children. When my three-year-old ignores me, and and when I tell him to stop, and I become frustrated because my authority has been disrespected, I need to die to myself before I um, confront him, before I discipline him. Or else I'm going to be Responding to him not because out of the desire to reconcile him in our relationship, I'm going to seek. I'm going to confront him out of anger, out of my own self-justification. And so, notice in both those scenarios with my wife and my kids, a sin has occurred. A sin has occurred that genuinely needs to be confronted. And so, I'm not suggesting that we just ignore offenses done to us. Rather, what I'm saying is. Love for the offender needs to be the priority, not justice. Not seeking personal justice. Paul's point in this section is, if you really want to be good lawkeepers, Galatians, if you really want to follow God's law, you want to be righteous, you're going to forget yourself and you're going to prioritize the spiritual health of one another above your own interests. John Newton, um, whom I'm going to speak of more in a moment, illustrated the principle this way. He says, a company of travelers fall into a pit. One of them gets a passenger to draw him out. Now, he should not be angry with the rest for falling in, nor because they are not yet out as he is. He did not pull himself out. Instead, therefore, instead of reproaching them, he should show them pity. A man truly illuminated will no more despise others then blind Bartimaeus, after having his own eyes open, would take a stick and beat every blind man that he came across. It's a ridiculous picture to think about. But how often we expect people to be more gentle with us than we actually are with them when they fall into sin. See, rather than biting and devouring one another, we should be consumed with this passion to love on people who are struggling with sin. So practically, how can we practically improve in our skills in reconciliation and restoration? I think, first of all, we need to remember the central truths of the gospel. That we were created to worship God, no long, not created to worship ourselves. We died to that. And secondly, we need to think, we view others differently. Their value, like ours, is no longer in what they do, it's in worshiping God. Secondly, I think we need to actively love people before we confront them. Show people, the way you do this, the way you love people is you show them that you value them. Show them that you value them not based on these worldly standards. That those people are important to you because they're people. They're image bearers of God. And and, 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 and people, we know it. We know when a person genuinely cares for us, genuinely just just desires our best interests. And a common question often comes up regarding reconciliation. How do I know when to confront a sin or when just to extend patience towards another person? It's hard. It's hard to understand. It's hard to know. Uh, for myself, as I, as I try to process through that, when do I confront? Uh, the principle that guides me there is really how do I best love this person? how do I best care for this person's needs? And what this does is it guards me from the tendency to avoid confrontation due to fear, which is often the case, or confronting out of self-righteousness, which is also a temptation. Paul says this, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in this one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself, but if you bite and devour one another, be, be aware that you're not consumed by one another. See, love really needs to be the dominating principle. And how do I best confront the sin? It's going it's to affect the way we do it. And if we do that, if we genuinely care for that person, it's going to affect um, our confrontation. So, how do you demonstrate to a person that they're valuable to you? That you value them, not based on the world's value systems, but because they're an image bearer of God. First of all, you need to get to know them. You need to find out what drives them. What, what, what do they like? What do they love? Listen to them. You can't make a person trust you. That's our desire, right? When we seek reconciliation or try to restore a person, we want them to trust us. But you can't make a person trust you. But you can make yourself a trustworthy person. Also, don't focus on the consequences, a typical tendency. Don't focus on the consequences. Instead, focus on how can I help this person? Doesn't mean ignore the consequences. You're going to have to deal with those. Those just don't go away. You have to deal with consequences to sin. But don't focus on that. We're spiritual beings. Um, it, and so we need to approach people with, one, with that sort of mindset. The man who I've received more comfort from regarding my own sin um, and comfort from in ministry and help, in particular in how to go about seeking reconciliation, was John Newton. He was the, particularly known for uh, his hymn, Amazing Grace. He wrote the hymn, Amazing Grace. He was formerly a slave trader, whom God opened his eyes to the gospel, and he became a passionate lover of people. Um, he's an excellent example of a gospel-centered people-loving pastor, and this that's reflected in this letter he wrote to a spiritually discouraged friend. This person he's writing to was a woman who was struggling with extreme doubt. To the extent that what she was concerned about was she believed that the Lord had rejected her because in her heart, in her mind, she had questioned his reality, or at least questioned his love for her. And so she thought because she had made that because she had had that thought, or in her anger she had shaken her fist at God, that God was therefore going to reject her. And so he writes to help her with this. With this fear that she had committed, committed this unpardonable sin. And what I want you to do is I read through this letter to her, it's a brief letter, I want you to notice how in ministering to her, he demonstrates the three principles we talked about today that he has a right understanding of the gospel, and that's driving this counsel. He understands this woman's eternal value, and he understands God's heart for her. Okay, So, John Newton to this lady who who believes she's committed the impartable sin. Indeed, I will not call it your thought. It is your temptation. So he says, I'm I'm not going to say that this was your thought. Rather, this was your temptation to think this about God. He says, you tell me you have children, then you will easily feel a plain illustration, which now just occurs to me. Let me suppose a case which has sometimes happened. A child three or four years of age, we will say, while playing incautiously at a little distance from home, should be suddenly seized and kidnapped by a gypsy. Poor thing. How terrified, how distressed must it be I think I hear it crying. The sight and the violence of the stranger. The recollection of its dear parents. The loss of its pleasing home. The dread and the uncertainty of what is yet to befall it. Is it not a wonder that it does not die in agonies? But see, help is at hand. The gypsy is pursued and the child recovered. Now, my dear madam, permit me to ask you, if this were your child, how would you receive it? Perhaps when the first transports of joy for its safety would permit you, you might gently chide it for leaving your door. But would you disinherit it? Would you disown it? Would you deliver it up again to the gypsy with your own hands because it had suffered a violence which it could not withstand, which it abhorred, and to which it never consented? And yet, what? Is the tenderness of a mother, of 10,000 mothers, to that of our compassionate Savior who bears to every soul that has been enabled to flee for Him to salvation? Take, consider that illustration and consider what I opened with the fact that we're all wild children. God desperately desires. That if you do not know him, if you've not put your faith in Christ, that you would be reconciled to him. He made Jesus Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin so that you could be reconciled back to him, so that you could finally live for what you were created for. I know our tendency is to, to follow what we want, we live for the lusts of our flesh, for our passions, for our pride. We chase after our own heart, and really the consequence to that is destruction. We know it. We feel it. But that's what the world says. Do this. You will be satisfied. That's not true. You weren't created to follow simply your own desires. You were created to worship Jesus Christ, and you cannot do that. You will never find satisfaction until you can be reconciled back to Him. Jesus Christ has paid the cost by dying on the cross for your sins. And He's given to us this message of reconciliation. Therefore, as ambassadors of Christ, we plead with you be reconciled back to God. And if you're a believer in Christ, and even recently you've found that you've drifted away from Him, you've stopped reading the Word, you've hardened your heart, maybe there's tension in a relationship that hasn't been smoothed out, sin hasn't been confronted or... Um, You've just hardened your heart. There's your harboring bitterness. First of all, I plead with you: be reconciled to God. That's first and foremost a sin against Him. You live no longer for yourself; you live to worship Jesus Christ. Be reconciled to God. Come to Him, ask forgiveness. It's there. The cross. The price has been paid. Confess the sin. Be reconciled to God, and then go and be reconciled to your brother or your sister in Christ. That's our ministry. That's our message. No matter what we do in the church, that's your responsibility. It's the same thing. Now that you've received the message of reconciliation, go to all the world preaching the gospel that God has, is reconciling the world to himself. So as you leave here tonight with one another, with your unbelieving family, with your loving friends, as you go home to your workplaces... Next week, or tomorrow, live for this passion. There are wild people who have been estranged from their Heavenly Father that are desperate to be reconciled. Considering what He's done for you, let that burden you, let that drive you to be a gospel-driven reconciler. Let's pray. Jesus, we need your help. Because although we know the reality that we've died to ourselves, we've been released from sin, we so easily fall back into it. We so easily just think about ourselves and what we want. So I pray that you'd help us to think differently. Lord, help us to die to ourselves when, when sin or. rears its ugly head in our relationships, either with you or with one another. Lord, help us to be quick to remember the gospel, to lay down our own self-interest, to consider how we can best honor you and love these people in our lives. And God, I pray particularly for each individual here that you would give them wisdom. None of this is easily lived out. And it's not easy to know even what needs to be done. And I pray that you would give them such a love for, for other people that they would make wise decisions, loving decisions, gospel-honoring decisions, and that through their love, people would be saved. People would be brought back to you and that you would be worshipped. For God, that, we know that's why you created us and we know you still have this passionate desire to bring people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, so that all people everywhere might bring you praise as you and you alone rightfully deserve. For you alone are worthy of praise. So God, as we continue in our worship service, help us to praise you from the heart as we consider what we've been saved from and what we've been saved for. We ask these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.